0: Good morning, or afternoon, whichever, (laughs) however you decide to parse this time of day. Uh, I'm Arthur Herman, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute, and thank you for coming, uh, audience, to this book event, and thank you, uh, audience on C-SPAN, for watching us in what I think will be an absolutely fascinating uh, hour and a half uh, discussing Mark Moyar's new book, Strategic Failure. Strategic Failure is, I think, a book as you will soon find out when you've read it, a book that every Republican presidential candidate ought to be reading and whose staff ought to be examining chapter by chapter to figure out how it is that we got into this terrible fix that we're in right now uh, around the world in the United States position there, and also some key ideas about how we get ourselves out. Mark Moyar... um, has written a book which I think, in terms of timeliness for understanding what's happening around the world, couldn't have been more uh, in tune <laughs> with where the American public is today. Poll after poll shows the American public is v- deeply disquieted with the way in which the United States is viewed around the world, with our uh, position as vis-a-vis other powers including Russia and China and our allies and are also worried about the increasing uh, instability increasing violence around the world uh, particularly with the rise of the radical terrorist organization ISIS and a lot of people are um, people are thinking that when we elected Barack Obama in in 2008, this is not where we were supposed to be. And this is a position, by the way, which the Obama administration has come to, uh, come to as well. Today's paper, uh, Wall Street Journal, big front page article about why it is that Obama just doesn't seem to be getting a break. That here he was, he came into office hoping to promote more stability uh, and peace around the world. Uh, wanting to build a new relationship with Iran as a partner in the Middle East, wanting to deal with climate change, uh, wanting to restore normalized relations (laughs) with Cuba, and also at the same time to de-emphasize the role of military power, America's military power and military presence around the world and emphasizing instead diplomatic and economic engagement uh, with the uh, powers, great and small, uh, that uh, that encompass the globe. And yet, son of a gun, it turns out, the article explained, despite Obama's great hopes for this future, this bright new future around the world, instead what he's been hit with is the rise of Russia, of China, as aggressive powers in their (coughs) respective reasons the rise of ISIS, the disintegration of what's hap- of, of, of Iraq, uh, and the possible disintegration of Afghanistan, and what a shame it is and how frustrating it may be. Our author today may figure that this is not such coincidence. Uh, and his book, as you'll find out, Strategic Failure, really deals with the root causes of the relationship between those two areas. Mark Moyar. I'm welcoming here to, uh, to his session at Hudson Institute, is, I think, a really remarkable military historian, scholar, in that he brings both an understanding of military history and also a keen grasp of how it applies to actual policy and the actual shaping of policy. In Mark's particular case, both in Iraq and also in, in Afghanistan. Uh, Mark Moyar... Uh, until recently, uh, professor at the Marine Corps University, with a chair in the study of ins- counterinsurgency and terrorism. Uh, also formerly, uh, also formerly from the uh, Joint Special Operations University, in which he was teaching. Who's worked as a consultant to both Central Command and also to the uh, to ISAF, the International Security Assistance Forces in Afghanistan author of several books, the most remar- one of the most remarkable, I think, and one I recommend to everyone, a book that really rewrites the history of the Vietnam War, at least the early part of the Vietnam War, Triumph Forsaken, which I know has had enormous impact on the way in which those of us interested in the American role in <laughs> Asia, in relationship to uh, uh, the, the, our past uh, Ventures in Asia, in security and military uh, presence, and future, uh, our future role in Asia also closely relates. Um, and so I'm really delighted that we'll have a chance now to ask Mark about not just his book, but also how he sees it fitting into the role of the United States in the world uh, and the ways in, which we, ways in which we deal with this. So Mark, let me ask you. Um, as I mentioned, at the, at, we're talking about the Wall Street Journal article, that sense that we have that the relationship between a, the Obama administration's diminution of America's military presence, including, of course, military spending, and also that the, uh, the relationship to the sudden growing instability around the world, that these things aren't quite a coincidence. Do you agree?
1: I do agree with that. We have some competing impulses within the Obama administration, which I think together have have led us to this point. One thing that I think you always have to keep in mind with this administration is that from the beginning it has been focused more on domestic issues than international issues. I see a lot of parallels with it uh, between this administration and the, the Johnson administration in Vietnam, which, as you mentioned, I've, I've spent a lot of time looking at. And so early on in, in Obama's presidency, we see him getting into Afghanistan because it's uh, a popular political <laughs> issue for him. And he, like Lyndon Johnson, has a very ambitious domestic agenda. And so his policies are intended, in, in many respects, to keep international affairs off of the front page. And we see, as also occurred with Lyndon Johnson, that uh, over time those foreign policy issues keep creeping in more and more. and. One of the reasons for that is that with the sort of crisis management, keep the news, the foreign news off of the front page, it puts you in a reactive foreign policy. And so you're not proactively pursuing some kind of strategy, which I think ultimately, again, eventually over time will come back to bite you. We also have you know, certainly within the Obama administration an impulse that says we don't need to spend as much on the military. We can use civilian power, you know, soft power, which is where the term smart power comes in. We're going to use less of the hard power. That's certainly been a big part of this administration's policies. Also, the idea that we could use drones and special opera- operations raids as the hard power instrument that we could afford to cut down our conventional forces has been has been central to this this approach. And you know, we've seen. Certainly, in the case of Iraq, for example, we're now finally coming around to recognize that that may not have worked so well, so we're now scrambling to get, get back into the game. And, and this is, unfortunately, a pattern we've seen repeated through US history, where there's a view that if we reduce our military spending, that we can uh, reduce the f- risk of future war. You know, we saw it after World War I, then we have World War Two, Then you after World War Two, we cut defense thinking okay, we don't need this, and then we have the Korean War five years later. Uh, and so what I, I think also is at work is that our adversaries are seeing that we, by cutting our defense spending, are actually reducing our de- deterrent capabilities. So to some extent, we're inviting further aggression by cutting back. And you know, as a nation, we can often afford to go through this cycle of we cut our defense until the next war comes and then belatedly catch up. But unfortunately, that usually results in the death of a lot of Americans who are not sufficiently well prepared for the next war. So I think we owe it to those people within our armed forces
0: to to, to maintain that preparedness in addition to having some kind of deterrent power. Let's talk about military spending and mm-hmm. the Obama administration's cuts, which are, of course, not just the Obama administration, but also the impact of sequestration uh, of imposing uh, rather arbitrary reductions in spending year after year when mm-hmm. Obama and Congress could not reach an agreement on on, on deficit reduction. Um, now, of course, critics are going to say, uh, what's to worry? We're still the biggest military in the world. I think there's studies that are out there that show that eight out of every $10 the world spends on military is spent by the Pentagon. Uh, we still have uh, a... Uh, Military that is uh, uh, covers the globe and it has enormous global reach. we have technology such as stealth uh, and uh, uh, and other kinds of uh, military military uh, advantages and capabilities that no other co- country can match. Why should we really be worried about reducing military spending and military presence, not just in one place or another, let's say, like, like Iraq or whether it's in in Europe, but why should we worry about this as, a, as an ongoing part of, of how we do business and how the Pentagon is going to be able to sustain our forces?
1: Well, good question. I mean, one thing certainly is that we in, in recent decades have been, has, uh, enjoyed a technological edge, but we've seen that slipping, partly through espionage, but uh, we certainly see, I think, a rising threat from China and Russia, so looking in the long term, we certainly want to keep investing, and with sequestration especially, we've hurt our R&D spending. The, the uncertainty in the environment has has undermined a lot of the R&D that's, that's been going on in the defense sector. I also think in terms of ground forces, there is a real concern that we just don't have enough. We are the world's only global power, and, and part of the administration 's approach their view was that we were going to get a lot of other countries to pick up the slack for us. But unfortunately, if you look, the record is pretty poor i mean NATO we tried to get them involved in Afghanistan. they let us down uh, nato 's defense spending is paltry, and even though we threaten them and cut our own spending, they still are not acting we can 't get the the Middle Eastern countries to do the kinds of things we would like so there isn't really a viable substitute, I think, for American power. And if you look at what's going on today in mean, Iran, there is certainly some, a lot for us to be concerned about there. Our land forces are still relevant. They're relevant as a deterrent, I think, to Iran to some extent. Also, if we actually have to, to deal with Iranian nuclear weapons at some point. If you look at Eastern Europe, which situation is very troubling now, we have now very belatedly seen the Obama administration send a token forces to Eastern Europe on a temporary basis. But I think there's clearly now a recognition that we need more forces in, in Eastern Europe. And Afghanistan, it's again, not clear what we're going to do there, but I think we, we need forces there. So given how small our ground forces are, I think, I think we really do need more of them to do the sorts of things that, that need to be done today.
0: Now, the last uh, really extensive ground operation the United States conducted was, of course, Iraq. Um, and one of the uh, most significant uh, changes that has happened in the, during the Obama administration has been a shift in policy and how to deal with Iraq, with the role of American presence there, um, and the question of, uh, <coughs> which you see debated in the media all the time now, which is, is that uh, who is really to blame or the growing mess and instability in not just in Iraq but in that entire region and with it also the role of ISIS? How do you assess those issues?
1: Well, I think in Iraq, I mean, certainly you can question the wisdom of going in in 2003. I think now, given what we know about uh, WMD and the intelligence problems, that, that there's a, a strong case to be made that, If we had it all to do over again, we would have left Saddam Hussein in power. Uh, But that's with 2020 hindsight. You know, when President Obama comes to office in 2009, that's that's long past. And he's faced with a situation where we have expended a great deal of American blood and treasure to pacify Iraq. And this is after, of course, if you may recall, President Obama during the 2007 surge was saying this wasn't going to work. But by 2009, he agrees that, hey, Iraq, has gone pretty well. We've got a democracy. We have Sunnis, Shiites, Kurds living together. And we have, you know, I think at that point in time Iraq was on the road to potentially becoming a really uh, groundbreaking development in the Arab world that you had a a democracy that was functioning. You had different groups getting, largely getting along. And so uh, whatever else you may have thought of what happened before that, we really had an opportunity in Iraq. At, at relatively low cost to to see this through. And you, the military at the time was arguing the situation is still fragile in Iraq. We need American troops here in the long term to help preserve this. And if you look at what's going on in Iraq 2009-2010, you can see pretty clearly the value of the American footprint, military footprint in Iraq because you have you know, lingering tensions between shiites and sunnis between arabs and kurds and american forces are there sometimes actually on the ground preventing those forces from actually coming to blows we also have the us military presence allowing us to influence the iraqi government president or prime minister maliki because we've you know he he certainly had his shiite uh, predilections early on but, but because we had troops there and because we really wanted to make this work we were able to tell him back off on these uh, provocative actions you're taking.
0: Now this was in 2009-2010.
1: Yes, and then we have in 2010 there's a disputed parliamentary election where
0: And as I recall, just to interrupt you, just sure. to remind everybody, that was also about the time in which the Obama administration was touting the the peace and stability in Iraq as one of its leading foreign policy accomplishments. That's that's correct.
1: That's yeah, that's absolutely right. And so you get to this election, 2010, where there, the, there's a party, the Iraqiya party, which is Sunnis and some secular Shiites. They get the slight majority over Maliki's Dawa party. And there's an impasse where neither side can get a majority. And the U.S. has certainly in its power the ability to decide who is going to be the prime minister. And you have a dispute within the administration. You have Vice President Biden, who is the president's point man, pushing for Maliki. You have people like General Mattis and the uh, CENTCOM commander saying, we act, well, we think Maliki is, is uh, not the best candidate. He's, he seems to be moving too close to Iran. He's too sectarian. But, but Biden and his camp win the day. They, they keep Maliki. They ensure that he becomes the prime minister and stays on. And so I do think you, know, we, you now hear the administration blaming everything on Maliki. I think it's a little disingenuous because they really are responsible for keeping him in there. Then get to 2011, a lot of debate over what the U.S. future is going to be like. For the most part, Biden and others do think we're going to have some presence. Most of the debate is over how big of a a presence after 2011 the U.S. will have. And uh, the Obama administration, late in the day, brings up these claims that we need parliament, the Iraqi parliament, to approve our presence, and we need them to give us immunity, give our troops immunity from prosecution. And this will later be used by the administration to say, "Well, hey, we, we were forced out of Iraq because the Iraqis put these conditions on us. This was 2013 when things are going wrong. Well, fast forward to 2014, if you recall, once we decide we want to be in there, we send our troops back in without getting those grants of approval from parliament. So that was, I think, a pretext. I think Obama himself did not want to keep troops there, uh, partly just because he didn't think it was necessary. Uh, partly it, you know, he, he was going around telling everyone with the election come up that I've, I've ended the war in Iraq, although Iraq, the war was really over, but he, he wanted to be able to claim that we're out. And you know, as soon as we get the last troops out at the end of 2011, Maliki is sort of unleashed. He arrests, there issues an uh, arrest warrant for his own vice president, who's the leading Sunni politician, all sorts of other Sunnis that get arrested. And in the ensuing period, Maliki really starts... Uh, Arresting more Sunni oppositions, kicks a lot of the Sunnis out of the armed forces, which you know, Americans then are kind of wondering: well, 2014, why is the Iraqi army so bad? Well, because we let Maliki pull kick out a lot of the Sunni officers, or, and a lot of the Sunnis ended up going over to to ISIS. So, so I think it, it was clearly avoidable. I think that's it's a been, great
0: recruiting tool for ISIS, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I think that was perhaps the biggest. Uh, Biggest blunt, single blunder of his presidency, which there's been quite a few, but but the decision not to keep uh, American troops in Iraq.
0: Um, and, and let's probe it just a little bit at why we didn't, um, and why the Obama administration was uh, reluctant to push on a state, status of forces agreement. Uh, in some, I know some people even arguing that they never had any intention of having a status of forces agreement. They wanted all American troops out. But didn't it really rest on a fundamental assumption, which you see very often in in certain foreign policy circles? And that is that a US military presence is almost always a provocative presence, that it tends to either foment confrontation, uh, to stir up animosities, stir up anti-American feeling, destabilize countries and regions when we have a robust US military presence. And that on the converse, that when you pull back American forces, people talk about the Obama retreat, right, American retreat. When you pull back the American military presence, keep a, as the, as the terminology goes, right, a small footprint, maybe even an invisible footprint, then in fact you are actually doing well in terms of foreign policy and in terms of an American security policy encourages stability and, 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 uh, and discourages conflict. Are, is your thesis in this book really that what we're seeing unfolding is just the opposite?
1: Yeah, that's right, and that's a point the Obama administration has made in, in several key places. So Iraq, certainly it was a big part of their argument. And that's it's ironic because you don't need to look back very far within Iraq to see that that argument is false. It was actually the basis of early U.S. occupation policy in Iraq under General Casey from 2004 to 2006. General Casey and John Abizet and others were arguing that, that the biggest cause of conflict within Iraq is this xenophobic reaction against the American presence. And so well, let's try to pull our troops back. So There's a conscious effort repeatedly to pull American troops into bases where they're away from the population. Uh, In the premise that once we do that, then the Iraqis are going to calm down. Well, once we did that, what we actually saw was that the Iraqis who were attacking us just started attacking the Iraqi government, and the Iraqi government kept failing. And so uh, when finally General Petraeus comes in 2007, we finally realized that, you know, actually the answer to these problems are Americans because the Iraqis (laughs) can't do it. And so we do see Americans come in. And again, Senator Obama in 2007 was saying, you know, Americans – we send more troops, it's just going to stir up the hornet's nest more. Well, of course, that turns out not to be the case. So it certainly proved false in Iraq. I mean, again, there was a sense, too, yeah, we pull out in 2011, things will be better in Iraq. Of course, we then saw the rise of ISIS. Didn't work out well there. Afghanistan, the administration made the same argument, when we pull our troops out of Afghanistan, things are getting better. But we've seen in Afghanistan, as the Americans pull out, the violence levels have actually increased. Afghans now are just focusing on the Afghan government. (coughs) Saw it in Libya as well. The administration said, well, we're not going to send troops into Libya after we destroy their government because that's going to stir up insurgency. So if we don't put our troops in to Libya, there won't be an insurgency, which, of course, we've again seen Libyans at each other's throats, massive violence, chaos. So it's an unfortunate theory that, uh, you know, there may be certain cases where, yes, the people don't like Americans, and that may incite violence, but as a general principle arguing that this should be a driving force, I think, I think the, the truth is that most of these enemies are not simply driven by American, the American presence, and, and that you're better off, in, in some cases, using Americans, if necessary, because our allies simply c- cannot do what we would like them to do.
0: let Let's talk about Afghanistan. Some of the most fascinating parts of your book have deal with Afghanistan. Uh, That's a war, that's an operation uh, with which you've been intimately familiar, been an advisor to ASAF on that. Um, Give us your assessment about both the trajectory of the Obama policy, starting from 2009 when uh, when they put together uh, their strategy in dealing with Afghanistan, to where we are now. And then maybe give us some idea about where you think things are going to go if current trends continue.
1: Yeah, you know, Afghanistan has a lot to do with how I came to write the book. Uh, I don't go into this in the book, but as you mentioned, I've, I've spent a fair amount of time in Afghanistan working on Afghan issues. And when President Obama came in in 2009, he promising that he was going to ramp up what he called the smart war. But, you know, Iraq he had called the dumb war, but Afghanistan was seen as being the war that was popular. The 9/11 attackers came from there, so. He was going to, you know, get tough, and this was partly to show that he was tough on national security. And he, so he does agree to increase troops, which I thought at the time was a good idea. The, most of the military applauded that, uh, but at the same time, he was doing that. He, he put a very short time frame on their participation against the advice of the military, and and the effects of that, I think, proved to be quite devastating. And I saw, and many others saw, that a, a lot of the Afghans were hedging their bets, or they were not. Uh, siding with the United States in 2010, 2011, because they were afraid we were going to sell them out just as we had in the 1990s. And so I and a lot of others were very dissatisfied with this timeline that that President Obama put on, which clearly seemed to be motivated by politics. And the more we know about it, I think the more that's true. And Obama and, and many of his aides have admitted that the decision to go in was driven by this you know, political uh, political self-interest rather than the merits of the situation. So that's been very troubling. Uh, I think it's been even more troubling for me and a lot of others was how the decision was made then in 2011 that we're going to pull out halfway through the counterinsurgency campaign, which General Petraeus and the Joint Chiefs were saying, okay, we've pacified southern Afghanistan. Now we need to go do the other big uh, hotbed of insurgency, which is eastern Afghanistan. And the Obama administration decided it's been kind of costly and expensive, and we don't think we really need to do that. And you know, people like Vice President Biden are saying, well, counterinsurgency hasn't worked that well. So we're going to pull out halfway through. We've, we aren't going to do what the military says. And we're now saying that the, all these people that we got killed in southern Afghanistan, that we didn't really need to do that. And, so, and, and the way that was presented to the public, I think, was very misleading. So... A lot of that is what led led me to to write this book along with the pull out in Iraq in two thousand and eleven I think uh, there' were a lot of us who Af- from in the early years of the Afghan war were willing to you know go along and try to do the best we could to support things. I think by two thousand and twelve there there's such a sense that the administration is more focused on its own political gains and not really concerned about what 's going on in these countries uh, and we 've seen you know it, As mentioned before, there was this view, at least ostensibly, that if we pull out of Afghanistan, that the Afghans were going to uh, stop fighting so much against us, that the Taliban could be reconciled, because they were there more because uh, America was there. And once it was just Afghans, that they would get together. And we've seen intensified violence. Earlier this year, we had leading US generals saying the Afghan forces are taking casualties at a rate that is unsustainable. Uh, and we've clearly also mismanaged relations with Pakistan, who you know, they have continued to support the Taliban. I think we had an opportunity. This was another problem with the the, the rapid pullout, is the Pakistanis came to the view that America was not in the region for the long haul. So they wanted to back the, the Taliban to come back, and they've continued backing them because they think we're going to leave, and then India is going to fill some of the void there, and they, they can't stand for that. so. Um, you know, I do think the, at one point it looked like we were not even going to have troops in Afghanistan right now. We've backed up a bit on that, I think partly because we saw what, how bad it was in Iraq. But I think uh, we certainly, if we continue to de escalate there as, as under current plans, I think Afghanistan is going to fall apart, and that's also going to have tremendously damaging ramifications in Pakistan, where we also have great, uh, great interests.
0: Now, a critic would say it was a hopeless case from the start. Uh, we put in the wrong person, President Karzai, who was hopelessly corrupt. Uh, the government is hopelessly corrupt. Uh, mm-hmm. The uh, ANA, the Afghan National Army, is corrupt and incompetent, like its Iraqi counterpart. That what we look at and we, we look over the, uh, what's happening in the Middle East, what we're really seeing is societies uh, and countries which are in a state of, of, of extended collapse and failure. And there's really nothing the United States could have done uh, to patch this situation up, that the, uh, the trying to uh, establish democracy in Afghanistan and in Iraq was a fool's errand, and that the United States uh, should have instead maintained a kind of hands-off approach. And that's really... That it's not just that it's the, it's the best policy, but it's the only, <laughs> it's, the, it's, the best, it's the best worst policy in dealing with countries and in situations like that. Given your experiences in Afghanistan, um, do you think this would have had a completely different outcome? We'd be at a very different point now than, than we are if a different strategy and if a different policy had been followed.
1: You know, there's been certainly a lot of mistakes that were made in Afghanistan. I think we've had, we've struggled because we've vacillated between a policy of trying to turn Afghanistan into a viable democracy and one of more narrowly focusing on our own interests. Uh, You know, one of the things you've got to keep in mind with Afghanistan is we, in the early days, trying to rebuild Afghanistan, we outsourced a lot of that to the Europeans, police, for example. Uh, we let the Germans handle that, and they assigned few resources to it. Uh, it was very poorly managed, and so we lost a lot of time. And this is, again, uh, a problem of our European allies. And I think it would be great if we could get the French and the Germans to do things uh, and take the burden off us, but the reality is that they have not been able to do a lot of the things we would like them. So we got behind the curve on Afghanistan, uh, and also simply because of Iraq, we were sending most of our resources to Iraq. It is a long-term process to to nation build, and I think we uh, too often neglect that. It's a generational project, and there is certainly valid questions of the, the American people have the the patience for this. I personally think.
0: Well, nation's him- building has become a dirty word now in politics. You can't go on Capitol Hill and talk about let's talk about nation building without being shown the door.
1: Yeah, that's right, and. and Part of it is, again, I think the hasty approaches in Iraq and Afghanistan have undermined that. Again, we sometimes think we can dump huge amounts of resources in, and it's going to solve the problem in a short period, and it is a long-term process. But I think, you know, this really gets into the debate within the Obama administration about what to do in Afghanistan, because 2009 you have a lot of the leading figures saying, hey, we are going to nation-build, although we're not going to call it that, but we're going to do counterinsurgency, we're going to pacify this place, secure it, and then you have Vice President Biden and, and certain other individuals saying, that's too ambitious. What we should just do is focus on killing terrorists, We're use drones, and special operations forces to do that. And 2009, Biden, people like Petraeus, General McChrystal, Secretary of Defense Gates, they really argue that Biden's strategy is really absurd, that trying to just focus that narrowly is not going, going to work in the context of Afghanistan. And so- Biden loses out in 2009, but then fast forward to 2011, Biden is continuing to make these arguments. He's coming up with arguments that counterinsurgency hasn't worked in Afghanistan, and so he is able then to gain new supporters for his strategy, thanks to the fact that you know Petraeus, McChrystal, Gates, Mullen are moving on, and you now have more uh, political supporters of the president moving into senior positions, and so you do get the president to finally buy off on this Biden strategy of we're going we're to use our drones and, and special operations forces to kill any enemies that are happen to be here. And, by the way, this then becomes a strategy not just for Afghanistan but for the U.S. presence writ large, which then you know, conveniently allows the administration to say, hey, we don't need big ground forces because we can use special operations and drones.
0: Let's talk about drones for a second. Because when we talk about the, uh, should we say, the hands off, small footprint approach to uh, American conflict, American power everywhere, but particularly in the war on terror, this has obviously become a hallmark of the Obama administration. The numbers of predator drone attacks, uh, if you chart them on a graph uh, from the Bush administration, which really initiated the use of lethal force. Administered by, un- by unmanned vehicle, aerial vehicles in the Jabaab administration, it's a straight curve up. Um, and now it's become the principal tool by which Obama and his advisors deal with the terrorist threat, uh, the terrorist threat that they dare not name. Um, this is a, uh, a reliance which the Obama administration uh, justifies on the grounds that it's been highly successful in crippling al-Qaeda. Uh, was it just a couple of weeks ago, there was a senior al-Qaeda official in Libya who was killed by predator drone strike? Um, and the Obama administration has been able to point to uh, these numbers of high-profile, uh, highly, uh, uh, high-leadership positions that have been vacated thanks to predator drone strikes, and to the body count, if I can use that term, uh, for, uh, for the war on terror, thanks to the drone strikes, as a measures of success. What I find interesting about your book, and I'm gonna ask you about that in particular, but I wanna do it this way. Um, what I find so interesting about your book is that while most of us right now are focused on the threat from ISIS, you remind us that the fact that Al Qaeda Far from being an extinct presence, is actually very much alive, and very much part of the part of the terror networks and part of the growing threats that we have to deal with. What's the relationship here between Obama's much touted drone strike and uh, counter terrorist strategy and the continuing growth uh, and continuing viability of of Al Qaeda? Not to mention ISIS.
1: Right. Yeah. The uh you know, the drones certainly can be tactically useful. They have scored some notable successes. Uh, the problem with the, the administration is that they've turned them into a strategy in many cases and, and as a substitute for other things that, that need to be done. And this is also, I think, driven by domestic politics. I mean, Early on, the president and Brahma Emanuel saw this as a way to show the president tough on national security. You know, I think a lot of the information that's been fed to the public about drones was inaccurate. Uh, you know, the administration touted the numbers in Pakistan. It turns out the vast majority of the people who were killed in Pakistan were not uh, important terrorists. Uh, a lot of them were people who were enemies of the Pakistani government, who the Pakistani government wanted to get rid of. There's been, you know, an unfortunate number of, of innocent civilians killed, uh, you know, we've also seen most countries don't even let us use the drones. It's mostly been Pakistan and Yemen where we've been able to do a lot. Uh, Yemen, you know, a pretty stark case of the limitations so of So in drones. other words,
0: let me just back up for a second okay. so we understand the full import of that. So uh, uh, the fact that so many of these predator strikes and killing of high-profile of, you know, high uh, uh, terrorists and al-Qaeda leaders in happen in Yemen and Pakistan isn't because that's where they're all hanging out. It's because those are the two countries which have the most liberal policy about letting America conduct those strikes.
1: Right, and we've seen over time, and in both those cases, over time, our, our permissions diminished because of the fact that we were killing the wrong people in, in many cases, or because of the fallout from other things. I mean, the bin Laden raid, which, again, was seen as this great example of precision strikes, actually led the Pakistanis to shut down our drone base and to interfere with the CIA, which is collecting the information... Uh, and, you know, we do know even when the drones were at their height in Pakistan, you had uh, Najibul Zazi, the subway bomber, and uh, Faisal Shahzad, who got that truck into Times Square with an SUV bomb. They were actually training in Pakistan in those areas at the same time. Uh, but, you know, perhaps most troubling is that the, the extremists have been able to find ways to beat the drones. They've got, you know, counter-drone technology. And, and in Pakistan, in what we've seen is that they have moved – Al Qaeda has moved into the big cities where we can't use our drones. The government will let us use the drones, and there's too many, too much risk of, of uh, civilian casualties. So the impact of drones has been declining. Still, I mean, certainly there's still value to them, and the surveillance capabilities are, are, are good. But uh, you know, Yemen, Yemen has totally gone to pieces. The, the military was actually pushing President Obama to use counterinsurgency as well as these precision strikes. And the administration said, no, we don't need to do that. Well, of course, the insurgents took over the country earlier this year, and and now we had to pull out all of our special operators and the CIA. So now we really can't do much at all in in terms of uh, drone strikes. There was one, you know, recent success which got a lot of attention, but it turned out that was a signature strike, which is something that's just based on suspicious behaviors. We didn't actually know that that was a a senior al-Qaeda leader. Uh, and as you may know the the world's leading terrorist bomb maker is still living in Yemen. We haven't been able to get him. So I, I very much worry about al-Qaeda in Yemen. Uh, in Pakistan, again, you know they've been somewhat quiet recently, but from, from most indications they seem to be rebuilding in Pakistan's cities. And that's, again, part of the fear. If we pull out of Afghanistan, I think that will further embolden al-Qaeda in Pakistan.
0: Okay. So if the drone strategy isn't working, and now let's hear some prescriptions from Mark Moyar about how to correct the direction. And my last questions, I will be getting to these in the broader sense, but for now, looking at the drone strategy, what's the alternative for the United States? The, uh, well,
1: certainly, uh, a lot of the good alternatives, actually, I think uh, we have lost out now. We've made some decisions where we've put ourselves in a hole. So Yemen... A year ago, we could have been talking about how we were going to build up the government's counterinsurgency capabilities. We are now, don't have a government to work with, so it's going to be a lot harder. I think we do uh, at some point try to uh, build up larger military forces in the case of Yemen. We're, you know, we're trying to get the Arab countries to do that. I don't think they're, they're doing a very good job. Um, Pakistan. Um, we again our relationship now with them is in pretty sorry shape because of events of recent years i think we we can to some extent uh, ease some of the pakistani government concerns about afghanistan by maintaining a us presence and i think we need to, to increase our our presence there you know the the current uh, small footprint is not what our military recommended so we need more troops there for the long term and you know even if we're not going to keep them there forever i think we need to make clear that we're going to keep a mayor as long as we need to. And if, uh, if it's going to be 100 years, you know, we can tell people that. I mean, simply conveying the message that we don't have plans to pull out, I think is very important. Don't we uh, still have troops in
0: Germany? seventy years, And we still have troops, I think, in South Korea after, what, that's getting on towards 70 mm-hmm. years, right? Yeah, that's correct. And it doesn't require, that the size that you're talking about isn't numbering in the, hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. It's not requiring commitments of that size. Right. But it is commitments to a specific kind of strategy. Your other book, which I should mention here as well, in addition to your book on Vietnam, is a book on the history of counterinsurgency, doctrine Mm -hmm. and the evolution of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that for a lot of people, what has happened as a result of the war in Iraq and the Petraeus surge, it's very success, I think in some way, did something to poison the well because Uh, counterinsurgency became, first of all, associated with state building, which, as I say, is a dirty word. There's a bipartisan consensus on defense on the Hill right now is that we do not want to engage in state building. And also it became uh, identified with long, grueling processes in which the Iraq War unfolded from its very hopeful beginnings in 2003 until finally the the Petraeus surge really paid off, almost on the the eve of the 2008 election. Mm -hmm. So as an advocate of counterinsurgency Mm -hmm. and saying that this is an important strategy which the United States needs to hang on to and be aware of, not the only one, Mm -hmm. but a key one here, how do you deal with those who are critics of counterinsurgency and say that it is, A, either gets us so involved in other countries' affairs that, we are in which it's a hopeless task, a fool's errand, or, B, that it takes so long, American public won't have the patience for it, and uh, it's a strategy that, uh, that uh, in the long term, uh, is one of diminishing returns.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think there's, unfortunately, a lot of people who think that counterinsurgency itself does not uh, work. in a recently reviewed a book in the Wall Street Journal called um, how to lose a war the right way, or the right way to lose a war. That was a good And, uh, yes. and, it, and that book basically makes the argument that you know, these kind of insurgency wars are inherently intractable, and you know, my point is that counterinsurgency, I mean, it, it, part of the problem that you alluded to is that some of the counterinsurgency enthusiasts kind of v- believe that you just had to pull out this manual and do these things and counterinsurgency was going to work great, and it, it's more complicated than that, so that's why we think we've seen some disillusionment. And I think part of the Obama administration's frustration with Afghanistan was that it wasn't as easy as some of the The proponents suggested. So what I believe, and certainly what I've argued, is that counterinsurgency depends heavily on the leadership, the human capital that's brought to bear on both sides. So if, if you have a strong pool of leaders on the counterinsurgency side, chances are pretty good you're going to succeed. And historically we've seen quite a few that have worked well. You know, we've seen the Philippines, Colombia, to uh, c- certain degree El Salvador. We've seen su- successes in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so uh, we need to, I think, try to move people away from the view that counterinsurgency is either a cure-all or that it never works because it said it very much depends on the context and and who is involved.
0: And couldn't you say that one of the reasons why the evolution of a successful strategy in Iraq took so long was because uh, after Vietnam and what was felt to be the failed U.S. strategies there, including counterinsurgency, uh, that those doctrines were sort of put in the shelf, allowed to gather dust and were lay forgotten, even with the Marine Corps, which is, of course, the great great progenitors of counterinsurgency warfare, uh, and that this is one of the problems is that when you don't treat it as an important tool in the box, you find yourself in situations in which you've got to go back to the old <laughs> toolbox and go and dig it out again, dust it off, and try and get it, get it to work. Uh, and you have, a, you have perhaps a crucial decade or two of lost doctrine.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the big problems we face now. You know, In the 2012, the Obama administration said we're not going to be sized to do prolonged stability operations. And basically, I think there's a sense that well, we've done counterinsurgency, it was messy, we didn't really like it, so if we remove our capability to do it, then we won't do it again. And unfortunately, what we've seen historically is that we get surprised by these kinds of wars. Both Iraq and Afghanistan, if you recall, we didn't want to do counterinsurgency in either of those places, and Bush came to power saying, we're not going to do these kind of things. But we ended up being in Iraq, all of a sudden things go south, and we decide we can't afford to pull out. Uh, Afghanistan we went in, we turned things over to the Europeans they couldn't handle it. Al Qaeda makes a resurgence, and we decide that uh, it's in our interests to go back in there and do counterinsurgency and so I think uh, you know we are very poor at understand or predicting when the next war is going to be. but the idea that we we can know that we're not going to have to do one of these things again I think is is uh da- very dangerous and Ultimately, again, if we're, if we're not prepared, the people who are going to pay the most are the people in the, the uh, armed forces who are not going to be prepared for that war.
0: With America's retreat during the six years, six and a half years of the Obama administration, now has come the advance of other powers, Russia, China, Iran. Now, you can't make the argument that, that, that these strategic failures that you described in the book with the policy to those countries— is the result of withdrawal of American troops from those countries and those regions. Um, How do you attribute this? What is it? There's a pattern, obviously, here to the way in which uh, these aggressor nations are now taking full opportunity. Um, But how is it related directly to the way in which the Obama administration policies in other areas have rebounded to, to creating new strategic threats in other parts of the world?
1: You know, certainly the, the cut in the defense budget, which was driven to a large extent by what was going on in the Middle East, has has had a global impact. Uh, I think our enemies have been encouraged by that, and, and perhaps more importantly, our friends have become more concerned. They doubt our credibility. But I think also you know, added to that is they look at decisions that the United States has made, you know, the Syrian red line that we then backed away from, Uh, You know, the administration has pretty consistently been reluctant to stand up for things. Uh, You know, the Ukraine is a particularly disturbing example where we had agreed uh, to protect them if they gave up their nuclear weapons, Uh, but then they're under attack and we we don't really do anything. I think that's particularly disconcerting. Um, You know, and we've done, in the case of China, we we kind of provoked them by saying we were going to pivot to Asia, which I think that actually stimulated their defense spending, but then we ended up not executing the pivot because we cut the defense budget and we didn't have the resources to send there. So uh, I think there's been a lot of, of missteps in terms of public messaging, which, uh, you know, really is, I think, a White House responsibility. Because we've seen, you know, we saw Secretary of Defense Gates try to mitigate some of the problems in his tenure, but ultimately foreign leaders pay attention to what the, the White House is saying. Also, our just cuts in our capabilities, you know, we're now headed down below 3% of GDP, I think has created a lot of worries among countries. And a lot of, you know, a lot of countries are, want to end up being on the side of the power that's gonna be most powerful in their region and they're they're thinking it's not gonna be the United States.
0: And towards, in the conclusion of your book, you have this statement. You say, by the time Barack Obama vacates the White House, he could go down in history as a president who forfeited America's global captaincy and ushered in a long era of global strife and instability. Now, the next president, as Obama vacates and the new one moves in, let's assume that he or she wants to reverse that process. Mm-hmm. Now's your chance to tell us about how you would prescribe, what advice you would be giving to a president in order to reverse that process. Start with a specific. What would you do? How would you handle now the situation in Afghanistan in order to bring that to success or even victory? Well, I would first commit the U.S. to a a
1: presence beyond 2016. And I I said I think we need to increase the number of troops probably to at least 20,000 there. And they don't have to be going out on operations necessarily. That's not a big jump. It's not. And I think for Iraq, the same thing. I think we need at least 20,000 troops there. I mean, what we're doing right now, we're keeping troops behind the wire. In in Iraq, in the short term, we're going to have to send people out. Uh, You know, there's not a quick fix now in Iraq because of what we've done. So, uh, you know, we can't just have the Kurds do everything and the Turks are now going to come in. We can't do an Anbar Awakening anytime soon because we've so alienated the Sunnis. Uh, we don't really want the Shiites just going in and, and taking things over and putting the country fully into Iran's orbit. So that's going to be a, a longer term process I think in the case of Iraq. Uh, but I think you know, broadly too we need to increase defense spending at least 4% of GDP which historically is relatively low but uh, I think you could even justify going to 5% but certainly 4%. Is uh, doable. But I think a lot of too, what the next president has to do is to re engage with the public. You know, this president has done very little to explain to the American people why we need overseas commitments. And you know, if you look at polls, you know, people say, well, public support for overseas interventions is down. And I think a lot of that is actually the president's fault because if you look, and he came into office in 2009 saying he was going to get tough in Afghanistan. He felt he had to do that to show that he was serious on national security. And at the time, people supported that. He got elected on this pledge to get tough. I think the, the public support has faded because they've seen the president is not committed to these conflicts He doesn't go out and explain to the people as you know more effective presidents have done. So you need somebody who's going to go out there and vigorously explain to people why do we need to spend 4% of GDP on defense? Why do we still need to be engaged in the world? And, and I think that will go a long way. The, the other thing in terms of public messaging is I just think there, there has to be a new tone. Our, th- this administration tends to react to crises by saying, the first thing is, they're saying is no American boots on the ground. Uh, and while certainly we don't want to just send American troops in wherever they are needed, uh, this administration has been too, too ready to rule out options, and I think that really has encouraged other countries, and it's been a discouragement to our allies who feel like we're not going to be there for them when things get tough.
0: So we spend more time talking about what we're not going to do than talking about and thinking about what we are going to do. Should we open it up to questions from the audience? Sure, that'd be great. If you could, when you, uh, we'll have a microphone come around to you if you could give us your name and also uh, any institutional affiliation you care to divulge. Turning to the back here, to the gentleman there, yeah. Uh,
2: thank you for uh, sorry. Uh, thank you for your good talk. My name is Bill Mikhail. I teach political science at George Washington University, and just met one of my students here, Charlie. <laughs> um, I have a question. Um, uh, 32 days from now, from today, it will be the 25th anniversary of Saddam's invasion of Kuwait. Um, many people say the war ended wrongly in February, March of 1991. How did this conclusion by Bush Sr. and Powell contributed to, to what we are witnessing now? Thank you.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, which is, it uh, takes a lot of time to go into all the, the ramifications of it. I mean, short answer, I guess I would say that um, it, it might have made sense to go in at that point, uh, but I do think at that time we probably would have, we, we likely would have made the same mistake of underestimating what it would have taken to to pacify and stabilize the country. Uh, now, I do think there was an option that, that you could have pursued then, and you probably could have done again in 2003, which is Basically decapitate the regime and then put the rest of the population or put the rest of the leadership there you know let the military essentially run it, can keep it as a, an authoritarian government uh, you know and had you done that, certainly things would have played out differently it 's really hard to to know wh- all the the steps that would have would have come in that interim. I, I certainly think now you're know, looking back in hindsight, you know probably a lot of people think, hey it would have been great if Saddam was still there because we wouldn't have uh, had to deal with that messy conflict. And now uh, Iran has now become the dominant force in there. And I think there's a fair amount of truth to that. Although Again, I think we could have prevented Iran from gaining its dominant position had we not pulled out in 2011, because that really has opened the door. And that's going to be very hard for us to get away from, because now you have 100,000 Iraqi troops who have been trained by the Iranians, the only a very small number who we have trained. But I do think that's in the long term what we have to, tr- I think there's still a hope that we can keep it from becoming uh, completely pro-Iranian because that's, I think, the only way, I still think you can, can have a unified Iraqi government trying to do a, uh, three separate governments. I mean, you, one thing, you've got a problem with the Kurds now in that <coughs> Turkey is saying they're going to go in militarily because they don't want a Kurdish, Kurdish nation. Uh, and getting the Sunnis, having a Sunni state is also, uh, it may be workable, but right now the <coughs> Sunnis, there's not really a good way for us to engage them because we've let them down uh, repeatedly. So trying to, to rehabilitate them is going to be problematic. So I think, think again, we're, we, we have to be in, in Iraq for a long period of time now, unfortunately.
0: Right. And then, we'll, then we'll come forward. <laughs> I'm sorry, back, just behind you.
2: There you go. Uh, Thank you. My name is uh, Carmine DeFilio. My affiliation is not relevant to this meeting. Uh, I I was wondering what your attitude is towards the kind of neocon idea that bringing democracy to to the Middle East is going to advance our political interests there or or, or our self-interest there. Do you have any uh, uh, opinions on that? Yeah, I
1: think... There was certainly some, there's some merit to it. I, I think, again, how we got to Iraq's position in 2009 is not probably how we would have liked to have gotten there. But I do think there was an opportunity created that, that it would have made sense. I do think um, in 2003, there were a lot of people who underestimated what it would take to democratize Iraq. And you know I think there was a belief that you just introduce the institutions, and you can quickly democratize the country. I think what experience has shown is that uh, culture is a big part of democracy. You have to have a culture that is tolerant uh, and is willing to embrace democracy, and you don't have that typically in authoritarian states. So it's a very, it's a long-term process. You know, I think 20 years or more oftentimes is going to be required. you know, I think in hindsight, does it make sense to invade countries and then try to impose democracy um, militarily? I think we've seen from Iraq and Afghanistan that it's a lot harder than we thought. So I think in terms of doing it militarily, uh, I think the, the, we have reason to be more pessimistic. I do think in the long term, um, I think you can still make a case. I mean, there's still debate, I think, over whether Islamic countries can really be made at least Arab Islamic countries can be made into democracies. Um, I don't think it's impossible. Again, I think we had a great opportunity in Iraq to show it was working, and it didn't work. Tunisia is now possibly an option as well, although again, we're seeing just the catastrophic terror attack uh, on Friday that Tunisia is in a very (coughs) fragile place. And there are certainly people there who want democracy, but that's by no means certain. So that's another place we need to really Keep our, keep our eye on.
0: I'm going to say two quick words uh, in support and partly in disagreement with Mark on those points. One is, I think, it's important to realize this comes back to the professor's question too that one of the, one of the factors that perhaps would have made the drive to Baghdad in, uh, in, in, in the first Gulf War a, have a more successful outcome would have been we would not have been in the awkward position. Humiliating position a year later of having betrayed the Shiite revolt that we encouraged against Saddam um, and that poisoned relations with the Shiite majority in the country and opened the door to, to, to a great degree to Iran to cultivate its connections there. Um, and the other question about democracy in Iraq, it's also important to remember that, that, that the push, that the idea that Iraq would be the perfect laboratory for creating a democratic regime goes way back to the 1980s, 1970s, 1980s. It was a State Department, State Department uh, fixture of the idea that uh, Iraq was the one Arab country in which there was, uh, even under Saddam, survival of, of a stable civil society, that would make cultivating relations with Iraq both much easier and, and supportive, but also could lead to the evolution of a, of a democratic Iraq in that process. And one of the factors which uh, helped to undermine that, uh, if you read uh, Ms. Fly's recent book on the outcome of the war in Iraq, one of the things that helped to undermine that stable civil society, ironically enough, were the sanctions. The UN sanctions that were imposed after the first Gulf War, which deeply impoverished uh, Iraq, uh, destabilized Iraqi society, uh, as she talks, people talking about professors wandering, well-respected professors in Iraqi universities wandering the streets begging for money because because the, there was none. Um, and so the degree to which the maintenance of Saddam Hussein in power and held in the sanctions regime did go a long way, I think, to creating conditions that made a U.S. mission of... Pacifying the country and then establishing a new stable government—that much more difficult. Um, but the what ifs with Iraq go on. We could be here all afternoon. So let's move on to the next question. Here th- we've got three in the front here, and then we'll come over to this side too. Here and then there, there—those yeah, three.
3: Hi, thank you for Hudson Institute uh, holding this uh, event. My name is Ping. I'm from Epoch Times newspaper. Uh, yesterday, two major things happened in China mainline economic field. Um, first one is a Black Monday for the stock market, and second is the um, Asia Infrastructure uh, Investment Bank was officially launched. And uh, you know, with all the like GDP, China's GDP keep on dropping, and uh, the AIIB um, still was able to launch. And with uh, 57 countries present, 50 countries signed agreement. And do you think this result is a uh, reflection of American foreign policy? It's hard to see this country like choose side. A lot of them are really Americans, uh, strong a strong island uh, country. Um, but you know, we still have uh, U.S. still have uh, Japan by side. But you know, one compared to 50. Right. And uh, how, how Americans regain the trust uh, from the international society, especially the Asia-Pacific region and the NATO and other part. And also for Taiwan policy and the mainland China mm-hmm. policy, mm-hmm. Taiwan constantly wanted to play a bigger role. But especially during, during the Ebola crisis, Taiwan was pushed away, although they want to be part of it. So I, if I remember correctly, uh, represent. Um, Congressman Smith, Chris, um, said this is not-so-wise politics, politics. And uh, he used, like, more straightforward words. Um, so how do you think about the Taiwan policy, mainland China policy, and the,
0: also... You know, this is a very interesting important question. And, and we have not talked about China at all. Uh, surveying uh, American foreign policy dysfunctions takes a long time right now. Uh, so you, <laughs> you have to be selective about where you target but let's talk about China as another example of the of, of Obama strategic failure, as you talk about in the book.
1: Yeah, well, I think uh, it, the the Development Bank is a very telling and, and I think troubling development, where you know, the m- most of the U.S. allies in the region, in fact, ended up uh, doing, going along with China, despite the fact the U.S. very much encouraged them not to. Sign on to this bank, and I think that is a reflection of declining confidence in the United States. Uh, I think in part of it is specifically what the U.S. is doing in the Asian Pacific. You know, the uh, I mean, China appears to be you know, pursuing a, a policy of gaining control over waters through sort of small provocations that aren't going to drive the United States to the brink of war. Um, you know, so the Scarborough <laughs> Shoal, for example, I think is a worrying. Trend, uh, you know, and it's again a case where the U.S. could have probably taken a harder line. We backed off, and so when other countries see the United States uh, not standing firm against China, I think that that causes them to, to change, uh, change their outlook. Uh, and having covered Vietnam, you know, I think you look back to 19, the 1960s, you actually, see some things aren't that different from than they were what they were then. And You had. Uh, the U.S. and China compete, competing for prestige, and you know I think sometimes the United States over uh, overestimates the value of its uh, its democracy, uh, and, and we tend to think a lot of these countries will side with us because they may be closer to us politically than China. But I think you know most countries in Asia are certainly very conscious of who is stronger, and China, you know, their defense budget's getting bigger. They're you know, building artificial islands. They're building more ships. Um, they're talking about the China dream that they're going to become this great power, whereas the United States, you know, we have declining budgets. We're not talking about how we want to be this great Pacific power very much. Um, we're showing in other parts of the world that we're, we are uh, in retreat. And I, so I think there's a great fear of isol- isolationism in the United States, which you know I, I think is not just a problem with the administration. There's also within the uh, you know, Republican Party, there's an isolationist wing, and, and you know, I think there's also, and I talk in the book a bit about how the millennial generation in the United States seems to be more inclined towards isolationism. They don't seem to understand, uh, you know, why there's a need or, or, or believe there's a need for a U.S., strong U.S. presence overseas. And that, again, is where I think national leadership can be important in terms of really explaining to people why, explaining to the American people why we need to be concerned about what's going on in the South China Sea. Um, because I think right now, certainly, uh, America is in the decline in the, uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. It doesn't have to be. But if we keep shrinking our defense budgets, that's going to mean fewer, smaller you know, air air and uh, naval presence. You know, the, bombs, the, the pivot to Asia, the intent was correct in that we need more military forces there to strengthen confidence in us. But we haven't ac- it hasn't actually delivered those forces because of the uh, w- what sequestration and other budget cuts have done.
0: OK, next question, the gentleman there, and then you, and then you're next, and then the lady
2: in the second row. I'm, I'm Dr. Willie Curtis from the US Naval Academy. Uh, you mentioned two things in your response there, the millennial millennia generation and the fact, to a large extent, that I think the American public doesn't really understand or or even discuss uh, uh, geopolitics, especially in regards (coughs) to great power politics. And so we misinterpret why the Russians go into Crimea and so forth. But what I want to pose to you is how do we deal with the next generation of advisors to the president? Okay, because this generation, a, as you essentially alluded to there, they have no experience in the Cold War. They have no experience in, in, that in uh, the post-Cold War period. And a lot of what you're talking about regarding uh, 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 counterinsurgency and so forth uh, was, to a large extent, a result of failures in the Bosnia Situation and so forth. So, American people take a dim view of that. But, how do we get the advisors and the staffers that's going to be advising the next uh, president and the uh, National Security Council about this multipolar threat environment that we're involved in today?
0: Tremendous question. Yeah. Well,
1: I think uh, I would say, you know, Generation X, which is uh, my generation and which I think will be import will will certainly be important for the next couple decades i think is in decent shape i think you know generation x uh, has a fairly good understanding of global problems and the, the the dangers of of getting disengaged uh certainly not universally true but um and, and i do think the the experiences of iraq and afghanistan probably have jaded a lot of people across generations which again i think is very unfortunate because in both cases we could have uh, maintained something. The fact that we pulled out, especially in Iraq, and now it's gone to hell, is, I think a lot of people will look at that. They won't look at what the intervening steps. They'll just look at the final outcome and say, well, we went to Iraq, and it was a total disaster, and it could ha- that could happen in Afghanistan. Um, the, the millennials, I think, is where we really have the biggest challenge um, because you not only have a lot of recent troubles, but there also just seems to be this, you know, general view that they are not uh, they don't really believe in very much in, in broader principles and I, probably you could say could have said a lot of the same things about the baby boom generation so maybe it's not re- irreversible um and you know there's some people would argue well the united states is going to get over this isolationist swing and we'll we'll, you know we've we've gone through this before it's not going to be permanent <laughs> which i think that might be true on the other hand if you look at you know europe you know the, the great european imperial powers you know, Britain, France, you know, they have, you know, a hundred years ago you probably said, well, they would never become isolationists or lose their interest, but they, to a large extent, have lost their interest, at least in the on the military side now. They still like doing foreign aid and other things, but they no longer want to, you know, aspire to really be great military powers. So uh, I do think there is a danger at some point that, uh, you know, if, if we could get to the a point where this change in thinking becomes permanent and that, the U.S. really is going to retreat from world affairs to a large extent, at least in terms of, of military intervention, which um, I think is particularly concerning because there's not really a, a viable substitute, um, or certainly not one we would like. I mean, you would then allow Russia and China and Iran to, to control, to be dominant in certain regions, and none of those countries really are, are especially compatible with our interests in those regions.
3: Zach Yule from Newsmax. Um, so my question is on the topic of uh, the Kurds. Um, if you look at like the U.S.'s relationship between the Kurds, especially in uh, Turkey and Iraq, it's been kind of shaky. Where do you see us interacting with them in the future, and do you think they'll play a, a larger role in sort of taking back uh, Iraq or just the broader Middle East?
1: Uh, yeah, that's an excellent question. It's been a lot, you know, a lot of discussion lately about you know, should we just be giving more to the Kurds? Because they seem to be pretty good at fighting ISIS. And certainly they have made some important, you know, gains. But, uh, yeah, the infort well, a couple difficulties. One is that uh, you know, some of the areas where ISIS is located are not near the Kurds, and I don't think the Kurds really would want to go into all those areas. Um, you know, they're not probably going to settle those areas. And if they did try to, you know, depopulate Sunni areas, that would create lots of problems of its own. Um, we've also seen, you know, Turkey, I mean, and this has been a problem going back many years, but Turkey now is talking about, you know, really going in and fighting the Kurds because of their fears of Kurdish separatism. And I don't think that's something that the United States can ignore. So uh, I do think that Kurds will play, uh, you know, th- they have an important role to play and we should keep supporting them, but I don't see them as sort of the... the Cure to the to the problems. You know, I don't think they're going to go into Raqqa, where you know the the ISIS capital. Um, you know, he, partly just because you know the, the places where we've been able to help them, we've been using air power. But you know, we're not going to go and in, probably into Raqqa and just you know totally demolish a city of a half million people and kill lots of women and children. So um, there's got to be other other ways, and Syria is particularly problematic because we don't have. Uh, I mean, you know, the latest news is we've only been able to get a couple hundred Syrian rebels to sign up for our training programs, partly because They're We've all told, signed up with everybody yeah, else. Yeah, we, and we, we're, we're telling them, well, we want you to only fight ISIS, but not the Assad government, and most of them don't want to do that. So, I don't think we have come up with a solution to that problem. Um, we, uh, you know, I think probably we need to you know, take a firmer stand against Assad, but uh, I personally, I, I don't think much is going to get resolved in Syria before the end of this president's presidency, because I don't think, I mean, he doesn't seem to want to take more vigorous action, really, than, uh, you know, like a lot of things, the Syrian rebels is kind of a token gesture. It sounds like we're doing something, but we're really not very doing much.
0: I'm going to play devil's advocate before we get to your question, um, real quick. And that is, some would argue, you look at the situation in Syria, Iraq, it spills over into Turkey, eastern part, Kurdish areas there, and so on, you sort of say, you know what, this is a fire you should just let it burn itself out. Uh, here we are with these conflicts. You've got ISIS killing Assad forces. You've got Kud's force from Iran killing ISIS. You've got uh, Kurds killing ISIS and killing Assad. Let the fire burn itself out. Let them all kill each other. Why does this in any way have be, be a become a major subject for discussion of American foreign policy, except for the fact, of course, that we are supposedly responsible for that by the invasion of Iraq. Uh, and why should we worry about what's happening now? Why shouldn't we just you know, worry, look in, ahead instead for when the fire is finally out and how we go about rebuilding those societies from there?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think a lot of Americans are asking themselves that question because they haven't so they really are. gotten the the administration explained to them why we need to do this. Uh, It is telling, you know, the Obama administration, which all along said we didn't need troops in Iraq, the wrong war. The fact that they're sending more troops over there, I think, indicates that even they understand that this is not a problem that we can just turn our backs on. Uh, I think we've gotten lucky in, in, in a number of cases in terms of dodging bullets from, I mean, we have certainly seen some pretty significant terrorist attacks. I mean, the, the attack on Friday in Tunisia where they killed, you know, dozens of European tourists uh, is, I think, a, a pretty disturbing sign. We had the beheading of, of a French uh, oil worker. Um, you know, I think it's harder for ISIS to get to the United States. Uh, and if we, you know, if, if we don't care at all what happens to anyone outside of our country, you could make a bit of a stronger case that, yeah, let's let's not worry about that. Uh, but you do have, you know, for one thing, you've got a lot of Americans living overseas who I think we do need to be concerned about. Uh, you know, and we're now taking a policy that we're going to pay ransoms for hostages, which I think is opening the door to uh, more Americans being kidnapped. Uh, I think we're going to see an unfortunate rise in that. Uh, we also, you know, I do think this violence between Sunnis and Shiites is, I think, creating more radicals. I mean, the. Uh, certainly some of them are killing each other off, but if you look at, you know, the number of extremist fighters out there, it seems to be going up and up. So they're not, they seem to be producing people at a faster rate than they're, than they're getting killed off. And and now that ISIS controls territory, they're recruiting people. And, you know, we, we're claiming that we've killed you know, very large numbers of ISIS fighters, but the latest indications are that their
0: strength is as, as high as it's been. So. Um, I think we used to make fun of that strategy, the idea of killing off terrorists faster than they, they could be recruited. And yes, yet it right. seems to be the one that we're employing right now with regard to ISIS.
1: Yeah, and there are certainly, I mean, certainly I think we're, we're gonna be seeing more lone wolf attacks inspired by ISIS, and we've had a number of cases where people come pretty close, and we, fortunately we're pretty good at uncovering some of those ahead of time, but you do have, you know, people like the Tsarnaev brothers who blew up the, uh, the Boston Marathon, and we you know there are there are clear indications that that people you know, in the United States, especially sort of disillusioned youth, are deciding to join ISIS or other groups like that because of the successes that they see and the the, the effective use of social media um, you know now if, if we don't care that you know occasionally somebody guns down thirty Americans or uh, sets off a bomb in a shopping mall, um, then maybe we can sit back I think the American people pro- are not going to stand for that. Now, you can argue, well, more people get killed in, in car wrecks. Well, okay, yeah, th- that may be true, but I think um, you know, when, when our security is threatened, uh, you know, we, the American people are not going to sit back indefinitely and, and be willing to just take a very passive and reactive uh, approach to all of this.
0: Which we might have avoided if we'd taken a more proactive approach in the first place. Right. You've been very patient, so why don't you go ahead?
2: My name is Carol Greenwald and I'm from Camera Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting in America. I actually have two questions. One, you uh, outlined how s- the Vice President gave lousy advice to the President, but Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State through much of this. What was her advice on, in the, there? And my second question is for the new President, how, assuming that we do know correctly the outlines of the nuclear deal with Iran, how would you advise the next president to undo the the strategic failure
1: yeah those are good questions the uh on iraq um you know i still think there's a lot in it and i caution the book you know we're still in the uh there's a lot of historical documentation that we still await and as a historian i know that you know some of that's going to come out 30 years from now so hillary clinton's role in iraq i think is still there's still a lot of of uh, open questions, I and mean, it was interesting. I believe Susan Rice the other day said that one of Hillary Clinton's biggest accomplishments was getting us out of Iraq. Um, she did, I think, I do think she was supported keeping some kind of U.S. troop presence there. Uh, so I, I would say I would give her some credit for that. I mean, I think she did not want to to see uh, Maliki. In, take control, have unfettered access to the country. I think if you are, the the country that I criticize her the most for is Libya, where she really thought Libya was going to be this great success, and some of the recent emails that have come out recently show that this was going to be her great success story that she could tout, and how we went in there and deposed the regime without U.S. troops, and we used all this diplomacy and make everything happen, which obviously hasn't worked out. And I think that also you know, the desire to keep US troops out, I argue, led to the Benghazi tragedy. Um now in terms of Iran, I do think the uh the current deal is is not is is a a bad deal for the United States and its allies. And so you know I tend to agree with um you know a lot of the advice that the Republicans have out there now but you should not accept this deal. Um again part of it too The other thing I would say about Iran is that we have, by removing our forces from the region, we have removed our deterrent capability, which, uh, you know, Iran certainly pays a lot of attention to how many American forces are in the region. And having made clear now that we don't have anything like the capability to go in there, I think will embolden them in the nuclear talks. And also, you know, say at some point somebody bombs Iran's nuclear sites. Well. How are they going to respond to that? Um, I think how the U.S. is posturing the region will contribute to that. Um, I'll let my. You, you are uh, an expert on Iran, so if you have any comments on that, I'd Oh, you. I would love to comment <laughs> on that. But you know what?
0: We're going to have to close this down. Our time is up. Um, but let's thank our author for a far ranging and very illuminating discussion. Thank you.